Good morning. My name is Danielle Morrow, and I'm a member here at Redemption, and I will be reading today's scripture. I'll be reading from Ecclesiastes 9, beginning in verse 13, through the whole chapter of 10. Ecclesiastes 9, verse 13. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed." If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth, the roof sinks in. And through indolence, the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. This is God's word for us today. As you know, uh, my wife and I have four children, and uh, we've had the interesting experience of sending three of the four off to college. You know, and it's an interesting time in a parent's life 
because God gives you these children and they're in your home and you protect them and love them and raise them and, and then at some point they become an adult and the eagle has to fly, you know, they have to, they, you have to let them go. And so whenever that's happened in our family, I've always tried to think of what I could say to my children as they launch into their adult life. And what I've landed on is two big ideas, opportunity and danger. I want them to make the most of all the opportunities that God brings them in life, you know, to uh, just be aware and be eager and, and see the opportunities before them and, and, and um, trying to think of the words from last week, uh, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. But then I also want them to know that there's danger out there, right? There's things to be aware of. There's people to avoid, situations to avoid, activities to avoid. So I want them to be shrewd as serpents. And so I've, the, the passage that Carl read uh, for our call to worship has come to mind in my mind. I, think, I see Jesus, he called these 12 disciples to himself, and they were with him, and he taught them, and they, they, were, they walked with him, learned from him, and then at some point he wanted to send them out. And he it seems to me, left these two pictures in, his, in their minds as well of opportunity and of danger. Because we read in Matthew 9.37 that Jesus told his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Pray that the Lord would send out workers into the harvest. And so then he's sending them out with this picture of a plentiful harvest that they can go work in. So there's this opportunity. There's this positive viewpoint. But then just a few verses later, as Carl read earlier, he also says this, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. You're the sheep. There's wolves out there. They like to eat sheep. So be shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. Opportunity and danger. So like me with my kids and like Jesus with the disciples, I believe Kohelet the author of Ecclesiastes, as he rounds the corner toward the conclusion of his book, begins to teach us both about opportunity and danger in this fallen world of vanity. And that's what we're going to look at today. I think chapter 10 is more about the danger, encouraging us to be wise as serpents. And then next week we'll look at chapter 11, which is teaching us more about the opportunities that we can take advantage of. And so just a quick review, Kohelet is the author of Ecclesiastes, who is described in chapter 1, verse 1, as the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Traditionally, most have assumed that this is referring to Solomon, David's son Solomon, although the name Solomon is not used in the book. Rather, the author refers to himself by the Hebrew word Kohelet, which means assembler, gatherer, preacher, teacher, and so I've been referring to him as Kohelet. And in today's passage, Kohelet is transitioning to the final section of the book of Ecclesiastes. And you'll notice that it's primarily proverbial. If you look in your Bibles at chapters 10 and 11, you'll see that the set, the typeset is a little different, and we start to get into Proverbs. So let's just review a little bit before we go into this section. Kohelet, in the first part of Ecclesiastes, shared with us his observations of vanity under the sun. He described things that he saw in the world. He identified things like injustice, oppression, 
loneliness, workaholism, false religion, political corruption, and dissatisfaction, among other things. He says, this is what has come to be in the world that we live in. In the second part of his book, which we've been looking at over the last three or four Sundays, he focused in on what man is or what mankind is. Mankind is a fallen creature under God's judgment of death whose heart is full of evil and insanity, and he is easily corrupted by power and wickedness. Now, throughout Kohelet's observations, he's recommended to us wisdom and joy and identified these as God's gifts to mankind in the midst of this vanity of life. And as we've noticed, there's several beautiful portraits of what it might look like to experience God's wisdom and joy sprinkled throughout the book. So today, Kohelet begins with a word picture, an Old Testament parable about wisdom under the sun. And this is kind of, I think, maybe the concluding picture that he wants to leave with us as he transitions into the new section. And he's gonna, then he's going to give us some very practical, proverbial wisdom for life. So how do we find God's wisdom and joy in the midst of all the vanity and evil under the sun? Well, first we need to understand the point of this parable. And that's our big idea for today. Saving wisdom is despised and ignored under the sun. This is what we see in verses 13 to 18. Saving wisdom <clears throat> is despised and ignored under the sun. Notice verse 13, he says, I have seen this example of wisdom. So this is what he's giving us. He's giving us an example of wisdom under the sun, a parable about wisdom. <clears throat> he goes on to say that this parable of wisdom or this example of wisdom under the sun seemed great to him. There was a little city with a few men in it and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Now that phrase right there, he by his wisdom delivered the city, there are two readings in the Hebrew that are both grammatically correct. And so we need to look at the context to see which one is right. ESV has translated that he by his wisdom delivered the city, but then it goes on to say people forgot about him and kind of despised him. I think the better reading, and this is grammatically correct, is that he had the wisdom to deliver the city, but as the story goes on, no one remembered that poor man. I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. So we see that there is wisdom here. There's wisdom that could save this little city with few men, but that saving wisdom was despised and it was not heard because it was the wisdom of one who was poor. So what's the lesson from this story? Well, I think what he goes on to say here is that wisdom is kind of unassuming. It's quiet. It doesn't force itself on people. Notice verse 17, the words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Wisdom is quiet. It's not forceful, it's not manipulative, as opposed to folly, which he says here is shouted by those in control. It's pushed forward by the powerful. 
Wisdom is better than military power, but the good that wisdom brings can be destroyed by one sinner. One of the lessons is it's easier to destroy than to build. Now, we might stop at this point and ask, what is the wisdom that is being discussed here? What is the wisdom that Kohelet is identifying here as the poor man's wisdom? And it's centered around Kohelet's teachings on the fear of God. It's the central theme of Ecclesiastes. It's the central theme of the wisdom literature. Proverbs 1.7 has this verse, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We see the same thing taught in Job, and the same thing is assumed in Ecclesiastes. So the fear of the Lord is what leads us to wisdom. And the fear of the Lord is not only the conclusion of Ecclesiastes, but it's the consistent theme of Ecclesiastes. And so I want to just quickly this morning review what he has taught us about the fear of God. What is the fear of God that leads to wisdom? Five quick things. The fear of God is to trust God is doing something beautiful in time and to humbly submit to his correction rather than resist him. We saw this taught in chapter 2, especially verses 14 through 15. So I'm going back through the passages where he specifically talked about the fear of God. Secondly, the fear of God is to carefully listen to God rather than to talk a lot. We saw this in chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. This is especially true when we're trying to come near to God, when we're trying to understand who God is and relate to God. It's best to listen to him rather than to talk. To fear God is, thirdly, to have a right self-assessment before God that is not overly righteous or too wise. We need to have a humble self-assessment, not think more highly of our righteousness or of our wisdom. The fourth thing, to fear the Lord, is also to not be corrupted by evil power, especially when the wicked prosper. We saw this in chapter 8, verses 11 through 13. And then the, <clears throat> the fifth and final thing is to fear that God means to keep his commandments knowing that judgment is coming. We'll look at that in a couple of weeks. That's the conclusion of the book in chapters 12, verses 13 through 14. So this summarizes the quiet wisdom Kohelet is saying can save us, but it is despised and ignored by the ruling and popular culture in the world. Now, This doesn't mean that those individuals and people who adhere to the world's wisdom are unintelligent, right? They may be very intelligent. By the world's standards, they may be geniuses, may have PhDs, they may have lots of power and authority. But if they do not fear God, they, by scriptural standards, they are fools, and they will ultimately be destroyed. The Bible often distinguishes between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of the world. James talks about this in James 3, 14 through 15. He says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, and demonic. So notice there's a sharp distinction between God's wisdom, which comes down from above, and wisdom that is earthly, natural, and demonic. Now, this earthly, which, this earthly wisdom, which is folly from a biblical perspective, is dominant in our world. That's why it's called worldly wisdom, right? Most people respect and listen to this foolish earthly wisdom, 
and despise the wisdom that's described here in Ecclesiastes as the poor man's wisdom or God's wisdom. The wisest poor man, Jesus, shared Kohelet's perspective about the popularity of earthly wisdom and the unpopularity of God's wisdom. He said on several occasions something like what we read in Matthew 7, verses 13 through 14. He said, Jesus said, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. The gate is small, the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. So will we follow the wisdom of the many or of the few? Biblical wisdom is the wisdom of the few. And Kohelet offers some quiet words of the wise to those who will listen in chapter 10 here. It's practical wisdom for how to navigate a world where saving wisdom is despised and ignored. So let's jump in here. There's four, I'm going to say four quiet words of the wise, groupings of Proverbs. The first one is, beware of folly in high places. This is in in the first five verses of chapter 10. Notice verse 1. Dead flies make the perfumer's oil give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. It's easier to make a stink than create something sweet. And even small amounts of folly can undo much wisdom and honor. Very small flies could destroy large vats of perfume or ointment. Wisdom and folly also, he says, originate in the heart and lead people in different directions. Notice verse 2. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Now, this is the Republicans' favorite verse, I realize, (laughs) but uh, this was way before political parties, so that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about, though, that wisdom and folly just lead people in opposite directions. And, and it originates in the heart. The key is the heart. This was a keynote and major theme of Jesus' teaching, something he wants his disciples to understand. And he said things like this in Mark 7, 21 through 23. There is nothing outside a person that can defile him. It's a, it's a major statement right there. There's nothing outside of you that can defile you. It's from within. Out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. They defile a person. So we must understand the source of folly if we are to understand the solution. There is no external solution to this problem. Whether laws or structures or governments or administrations, these do not get to the heart of the matter. Without heart change, which involves confession of folly and repentance, folly eventually manifests itself in a person's actions, as we see in verse 3. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. Folly in the heart will eventually and always become evident in what people do, how they live, how they walk. And it's our wisdom to focus primarily on what people do more than what they say. 
to determine their character. Because people can say all kinds of crazy things, right? But it's what they do that really reveals what is, what is in their heart. Jesus talked about this a lot as well. Matthew 7, 15 through 16, he said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. A sheep's clothing was what shepherds wore, right? And so he says, the false prophets, they come to you as if they're for you, as if they're trying to help you, as if they want to be on your side or in your corner. But he says, inwardly, they are ravenous wolves. You will know them how? By their fruits. So we don't believe everything people say, but we do look at the fruit of their lives, their actions, their walk. One of the telltale signs of foolishness is anger, especially anger in positions of authority. And if someone in authority over you tends to get angry with you, stay calm and it, and it will eventually blow over. This is what he says in verse 4. If the anger of the ruler, a ruler here is just somebody in authority, rises against you, and again, this is the assumption here, is that this, this is a foolish person because they're, they're letting their anger control what they say and what they do. If, his, if this anger rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. Do not leave your place obviously refers maybe to your job or to your post. Just don't, don't leave off, get angry, and so that there's two foolish people here, right? Stay calm. It may also refer to your convictions, Calmly stand firm in your convictions, in your place, and you can sometimes gain respect by doing this, but more often it results in a lack of promotion, as verses 5 through 7 suggest. Notice verse 5, there is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places. He says this is a common problem, many high places. And the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. Now, don't stumble over the rich and the princes. He's just trying to paint the picture of there are people who are wise and competent who are demoted to low positions, and there are people who are foolish and incompetent who are put in high places. He says this is a common evil and an error to promote foolish and incompetent people to high places, to positions of power and influence, while the most competent are passed by. And so we learn those with power to appoint others to positions of power and, and influence often have other motives than to find the wisest and most competent person for the position. It may be personal favoritism, nepotism, self-preservation, revenge, or a host of other motives. And this is the little folly that can destroy much good. So if you're in a position to appoint or promote other people, it's wisest to be as objective as possible and make the best and wisest choice. If you're passed over for a promotion by someone less deserving, don't be too surprised or shocked. It's kind of the way the world works. The ex exaltation of folly can happen in government, in businesses, large and small, in organizations of all kinds, and sometimes, sadly, even in churches. In our current ruling administration, there seems to be a priority placed on things like race, gender, and sexual orientation over and above wisdom or competency. 
In fact, someone demonstrating the wisdom and fear of God that Kohelet is recommending would certainly be overlooked and canceled. This kind of misprioritization is nothing new, but it can't help but have disastrous effects. Kohelet calls it an evil, an error, saving wisdom that is being despised and ignored, flies in the ointment. As Jesus builds his church on earth, he's made it clear that he has a very high bar for the kind of leaders he is looking for. Those who have high moral character and proven wisdom and grace, and we are wise to hold to those standards as a church. Now, Kohelet, in verses 16 to 17, he goes on to speak of the blessing or curse of wise or foolish leadership at the highest levels of government. Notice verse 16. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. A land is devastated or a nation is devastated when their ruler is a child. And the idea here is probably that they are childish or immature. And they surround themselves by similarly immature people who see power as an opportunity for self-indulgence. Wise and competent leadership that serves the best interests of the people is a great blessing on a nation, something we should pray for and utilize whatever influence we can to promote. Verse 20 warns us to be wary of how we speak about rich and powerful people, for they have an uncanny ability to to find out people who are saying critical things about them. Notice verse 20. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. You've heard this, the phrase, a little bird told me, that it came from this verse. And so many of you know, uh, years ago, we used to house international students. And so uh, before COVID, we had students from all over the world stay in our house, and then they would study English down uh, near Marquette. And so one time we had a girl from Saudi Arabia stay with us, and she told us that her father worked for the king of Saudi Arabia. And so we were, wow, that's neat. You know, so we, we investigated and learned a little bit about the, the royal family of Saudi Arabia and all the drama and intrigue that happens in that kind of royal family, as you can imagine. So one night we were having dinner, and I asked her, I said, um, you know, so your dad works for the king. What is, what is the king like? You know, like, what is he really like? behind closed doors. And she just kind of had this prefabricated statement. She said, the king of Saudi Arabia is a great man and he's a blessing to the nation of Saudi Arabia. And I said, okay, I know that. Um, we're in America, you know, I mean, what's he really like, you know? And then I could see she got very uncomfortable. I kind of see fear in her eyes. And she said, the king of Saudi Arabia is a wonderful man. He's a blessing to the nation of Saudi Arabia. And I thought, wow. You know, uh, she has learned this lesson really well. And who knows what she had seen with her father being involved in the, the royal, you know, working for the king. And so, you know, this is something, this proverb is kind of unfamiliar, I think, to us in America. We have freedom of speech that protects us, so we can say whatever we want, right? We hear people say all kinds of crazy things about our leaders. Nonetheless, it would be wise for us to be careful in our speech especially regarding those who have authority over us personally. 
So beware of, of uh, folly in high places. That's the first quiet word of the wise. The second is be wise at work. And so with these next group of Proverbs, Proverbs verses 8 through 11, they take us from the halls of power to the street. This is street-level working wisdom. And verse 8 reminds us that we reap what we sow. Notice verse 8. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. Now these activities, digging a pit, breaking through the wall, probably describe criminal activities that harm people rather than help others. And so I think the idea is stay away from this kind of shady criminal activity. Find a job that's helpful or useful or beneficial to people. Verse 9 encourages us to consider the risks of the work that we choose. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. Now these these, uh, types of work can have great reward, but they have great risk. So he's just saying consider the risks. Be careful. Be wise about the kind of work that you choose. Verse 10 tells us to work smarter, not harder. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge... He must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. I had a guy working for me for many years, and he was a very strong man, a hard worker, great to have around when he had like physical labor to do. And uh, but I but one thing I noticed about him is, whenever I'd leave him like alone at a job site, he'd always do something foolish that would cost me more time and money. You know, so I had to keep him close with me close by me. Um, One day, uh, we had had a tree fall down on one of our properties, and so um, I said, hey, you know, we need to cut this up. Uh, Can I leave you here? You cut this up, and then I'll come back later. We'll take the wood and and take it away. He's like, yeah, yeah, I used to work for the forestry service, so this is great, you know. So I left the chainsaw there, plenty of of gas, all the materials that he needed, and so I went away and did, did the other things that I had to do, came back, thought he'd be done, and, and almost nothing was accomplished. And I saw a lot of smoke rising up from the chainsaw. And I said, what, you know, what's going on here? And he's like, well, the, the blade is dull. And I said, well, why didn't you call me and tell me? You know, there was a brand new blade in the bag that I'd left with him. There was a file that he could have sharpened the blade. But he just tried to use his strength to take this dull saw blade and cut through all these logs. Don't be that guy, right? <laughs> I mean, uh, sharpen your axe, right? Be the best and most efficient at what you do. And then wisdom and diligence will give you success. You know, and I work in the trades, and so having the right tool and knowing how to write, use the right tool for the right job can make a ton of difference in, in, in my line of work. But it takes a willingness to learn. It takes a willingness to learn new skills, try things a new way. And so that's what he's saying here. Don't just rely on your strength. Be wise. Be smarter. Not, not work harder necessarily. Now, verse 11 is difficult, but it probably admonishes us to have a useful skill. Notice what he says here. If the serpent bites before it's charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. Now, again, it's, it's confusing Hebrew here, but I think the best interpretation here is that snake charming, although it's a very interesting and curious skill, it's really not that valuable, right? It doesn't really keep snakes from biting people. Sometimes the charmer themselves get bit. And so I think the idea is, is you know, don't get focused on these kind of useless things. Do something that's valuable. 
So the big idea for being wise at work is to be skilled at work that is beneficial to others. If you have these kinds of skills, you will always be able to find a job and you will always be valued. So be wise at work. The third thing is be wise with words in verses 12 through 15. Our words have a great impact on our experience in life. Notice what he says here, verse 13, or verse 12. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. Now, this is a big topic in wisdom literature. Danny, when he was preaching through Proverbs, he preached a whole sermon on our words. Proverbs 18.21 says, Life and death are in the power of the tongue. Those who love it will eat its fruits. It's very very important for us to learn how to use our words wisely. And the emphasis here in Ecclesiastes chapter 10 seems to be on the fool's tendency to talk too much. His lips consume him, it says. Very interesting picture. Proverbs 10.19 says, When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. But he who restrains his lips is wise. But the fool just keeps multiplying words, as it says here in verse 14. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be. Who can tell him what will be after him? He talks about things that he doesn't understand because his goal is not to seek understanding. Proverbs 18.21 says this, A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his own opinion. And so the first step in being wiser with our words is learning to listen more and talk less. Proverbs 17, 26 says, Even a fool, when he keeps silent, is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. And so are your words helping you or hurting you? Do you need to listen more and talk less? This seems to be especially true in our political culture. seems to be more and more characterized by people just shouting at each other and demonizing each other. The more careful we are to truly understand opposing and different viewpoints from from our own, the better able we will be to make an informed and compassionate response. So be wise with your words, and finally, fourthly, be wise about money. Verses 18 to 19. Through sloth, the roof sinks in, and through indolence, the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. So these verses teach us that through laziness, things fall apart, and life is not very enjoyable. The wise action is to get to work, make some money, so you can enjoy some of the things that money can afford. Now, Some of us are bothered by this phrase, money answers everything. But we know by now that Kohelet uses hyperbole to shock us into thinking. We also know that Kohelet had gone to great lengths in chapters 5 and 6, had a whole sermon on that to warn us about the danger and dissatisfaction that comes from loving money. So here he is warning against the other extreme of despising or undervaluing money. Something that sometimes people who are lazy or live sort of an easy lifestyle tend to do. So when it comes to money, there are two ditches that we can fall into. We can overvalue and love it and idolize it, or we can undervalue it and despise it. The wise avoid both extremes. 
We see this in Jesus and Paul's teachings as well. Jesus taught, Matthew 6, 24, you cannot serve God and money. He had many warnings about idolizing money. But he also said in Luke 16, 9, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Very interesting passage, but one in which Jesus sees a positive use of unrighteous wealth. Paul taught similar things. In 1 Thessalonians 3.10, he said, If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. This seems like a very strong statement to us, but there were people in the church who he said were busybodies who were taking advantage of the compassion of the Christians in that church. And Paul's saying, look, if, if they're able to work and they're not working, they shouldn't eat. He says in 1 Timothy 5.8, if, if anyone does not provide for his family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So this is undervaluing work and money. But we know Paul also taught us in 1 Timothy 6.10 that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Now it's important that we recognize money is not a root of all kinds of evil. It's the love of money that is a root of all kinds of evil. It's not more spiritual to be poor or rich. Virtue is not determined by how much money you have or don't have. Money can be used for good or evil. We'll look, see next week in chapter 11 in particular that generosity is a great opportunity in life. But we can't give what we don't have. We can't be generous with an empty wallet. So, be wise about money. So we're going to stop here today. There's more quiet words of the wise next week in chapter 11. We'll pick that up next week. But Kohelet's words here are meant to help us learn wisdom in the practical areas of money, work, words, and authorities in our life so that we can find joy in the futility of life, so we can be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. As we close today, I'd like to think again about that opening picture that Kohelet had of the poor man's saving wisdom that was despised and ignored. I can't help but think of Jesus and his message of salvation when I hear this story. The New Testament gives us a picture of a great and mighty enemy of mankind waging war against humanity and seeking to destroy it. He's described in Revelation 12, there's this picture of a a great dragon. Revelation 12.9 says that the great dragon is the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And at the end of chapter 12, verse 17, the dragon is further described as making war on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. But there is a poor, wise man who can save us from this overwhelming power that is too great for us by ourselves. And Revelation 12, 11 makes it clear that they have conquered him, the dragon, they conquer him and overcome him by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even to death. This poor man, Jesus, has accomplished salvation through the wisdom of the cross. 
1 Corinthians tells us that the wisdom of the cross is foolishness to the world. It's despised and rejected by the world. But it is the wisdom of God. It is the righteousness of God that becomes our salvation when we believe in Jesus Christ. 